Amen. Thank you, Rachel. Good morning. Res kids, you guys are dismissed. And then after they clear the aisle, uh, ushers, you guys can come forward for the morning's tithes and offerings. Uh, as Rachel thanked God for, our uh, prog team is back. And I just want to give Sam Crago a round of applause. He got in at 4 a.m. and he's here. So good job, Sam. Uh, I don't think I would be. And so, uh, you know, he'll probably fall asleep, but he's here. So uh, that's good news. They returned at about 4 a.m. Uh, they actually landed in Charlotte and then drove up to Charleston and got home at 4. And so um, they had a really great trip. I saw some photos. I haven't gotten to talk to our, our folks over there yet, but I'll let them share some next week. But I saw some great shots of, of uh, a neighborhood we've been trying to plant a church in for years. There was a big cookout. They had, I think, about 60 people at this cookout that they were connecting with. And the, I saw some of the elders up grilling burgers for the people in the, the neighborhood. And so I uh, really, really hope that that sparked some, um, just energized that, that fellowship and, and it helped them as they continue to, to seek to plant a church uh, there in that neighborhood, Barandov of, of Prague in the Czech Republic. We're in week three of our series through Colossians, and we'll just jump right in. The title of this series is Christ Above All, and today's particular sermon, if this were a, an album, would be the title track for that album, if you will. But I'm changing the name of the sermon a little bit. The title of this morning's sermon is Christ over all and for us. Christ over all and for us. The verses we'll consider this morning are some of the most well-known of the entire letter. They are essential to a right Christology. Christology is a word we probably don't know, but let's explain it. These verses are essential to a right Christology. Anytime you hear ology at the end of a word, it just means knowledge. So theology would be knowledge of God. Uh, Christology would be a knowledge of Christ. So these verses help us have a right knowledge of Christ. If we wanted to bring it down another level, we could say these verses help us know Jesus. The Colossians are quite different than us in many ways, the people receiving this letter, but many of the questions that they have that Paul is addressing are some of the same questions that, that we face, that we wrestle with this morning. What is the right way to think about faith, spirituality, religion, insert whatever word you'd like? What does that right way look like in practice? How do I rightly live out a faith? And the third question I think is really significant to the Colossians, and it's really significant in our day, and it's a little less obvious. Can I trust the people giving me this message? Can I trust the people giving me this message? The Colossians were coming under fire by some of the, the, the pagan peoples around them. And one of the, the targets of their questions was the person who presented the gospel to them, Epaphras. And they were really turning on him in many ways. And so Paul is reminding them that Epaphras, the message he has, is not just his message. It's, it's actually God's message. Because the Colossians are like us. They're a relatively small group of people clustered together in a city, and they're beginning to question, like, man, we're like the only people that feels like who care about this. And, and this Epaphras guy who shared it, like, no one else is really catching on really quickly. And they're giving us all this information about what we actually should believe and how we actually should live. And do we really trust him anyways? He's not that different than us. 
He's not that smart. Is this all about him? What's going on here? And so Paul is writing to address many of these questions. He's encouraging them to continue listening to and following Epaphras, an imperfect but still faithful leader. He's helping them think about the right way to believe. He's helping them think about the right way to live. And he'll give some colors and contours as he shapes out what the Christian life looks like in the everyday stuff of life. But before he does that, he'll give an introduction as we've experienced in depth. And here right after the introduction and his introductory sort of beginning remarks, he sets forth the point of the Christian life. Christ himself. Because without Jesus Christ as the cornerstone of our faith, nothing we build on top of that foundation will matter. It may stand for a little while before the storms of life come and it falls. It may stand for a little while before we go off and learn something new and it it changes the way we think and our faith was never rightly built on a cornerstone in the first place and so it crumbles to the ground. Before I can think about the trappings of religion, before I can think about what religion looks like lived out, I have to get the object of religion right. I have to get the point of religion right. I have to get the entire reason we have this religion right. And that reason, that point, that object, that substance is Christ. And let us this morning look to this Christ. This Christ who is over all, yet simultaneously for us. I'll say from the jump, this is not a particularly complicated sermon. It should be a relatively quick sermon, but it's a sermon I hope brings us to our knees in worship. Christ over all, we'll consider, and then we'll consider Christ for us. Those are the two basic subdivisions of the message this morning. Let's jump right into verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now most scholars believe that what Paul is doing here is actually quoting a hymn. He's actually quoting sort of a creed, and what that looks like is that the Jesus way was a burgeoning oral tradition, right? The stories of Jesus were circulated around the community of the faithful, and letters like these were being penned to encourage and exhort and instruct these churches. And so there would be at least weekly gatherings. They would meet generally in homes, sometimes in uh, crypts, actually. But they would meet in, in homes, and they would They would share together the message of Jesus. They would share a meal together, a Eucharistic meal. A part of that meal is the Lord's Supper, and they would would sing hymns together, right? Things like the Psalms, which we read 
often in our morning worship services. And they were developing this tradition of Jesus, and these hymns were meant to worship, but they were meant to instruct. Worship and instruction were always one and the same, because nothing gets to our heads more effectively than when it enters through our hearts. And so there were these hymns and creeds that were used to sing, they were used to chant, they were used to recite, and they were used to memorize, they were used to catechize young kids so they understood the message of what was happening. And a lot of scholars believe that Paul has taken sort of this developing creed, this developing hymn, and, and used it to encourage the Colossians. Or he's perhaps added to or taken from or whatever, but nonetheless, this is most likely what Paul is doing here. He's giving us a window into how the early church conceived of Jesus, and in so doing, he's forming the apostolic tradition. All that means is the tradition of the apostles that serves as our way of knowing Jesus. So when we read verses like this, we're not just reading ideas or postulates. We are reading the work of the Spirit of God among the people of God. And when we read this verse, we are divinely seeing something that fleshly eyes could not see. Paul is beginning his letter as he moves toward the actual content of it by setting forth this great Jesus. So let's just jump right in. Let's just work our way through this section as we consider this Christ who is over all. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Image from the Greek term icon. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Central in the Jewish tradition is this concept that God is invisible. He is not seen. And the New Testament is setting forth, do you want to know what God is like? Then look to Jesus. That Jesus is the visual embodiment of that which has so long been invisible to us. If we want to know God, we can know God because God has come to us. God has taken on a physical body that dwells in time and space. And for the first time ever, you can look and you can see him. He is the image of the invisible God. He rightly reflects God. If we will think rightly, we will look to Jesus. He is the firstborn of all creation. This doesn't mean he was created. In fact, that would be heretical. And that was one of the biggest controversies in the early church. Did someone create Jesus? Was Jesus created by God or has Jesus always existed with God? And the answer is Jesus has always existed with God. And so what Paul is thinking here is he has all the rights and privileges that a firstborn son has. Now, today in the U.S., a firstborn may have informal favor. Uh, they may or may not. The baby might be the most popular. The, uh, the middle child in your family might be the most popular. That's a rare thing, but it might be true. And so there's all kinds of different things, and it's not a huge deal. It generally has personalities, it's interests, it's proximity to parents, it's all sorts of different things. But in the ancient world, the firstborn was a big deal. And so by saying he is the firstborn of all creation, Paul is teaching that all the rights and privileges that a firstborn child would have, particularly a firstborn male child in these Near Eastern cultures, Jesus has. He is preeminent over all creation. He is the heir. He is the inheritor, right, of all things. He is the one on whom all favor rests. 
verse 16. For by him all things were created. What an incredible tool to help us understand Genesis 1, right? By him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and here's the beautiful truth that accompanies that, and for him, that Jesus created all things, whether visible or invisible, in heaven, on earth, all the powers that we think we see, they were all created by Jesus, and they were all created for Jesus. Everything Christ has made is meant to proclaim and demonstrate that Christ is good. By him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen to that beautiful truth. In him, in Jesus, all things hold together. This is a picture of a Christ, of a Jesus who reigns over the whole universe, but he's not just like, you know, a watchmaker is a popular metaphor that uh, some deists and, and non-Christians will use to talk about their idea of a God. They'll talk about a watchmaker who, who creates the watch a certain way, and once the watch is running, what does it do? It just kind of runs because the watchmaker's created it a certain way, and he's very hands-off, and he just lets the watch run. That's not the picture we have here of Jesus. We have a picture here of Jesus where the text says, in him all things hold together. That if you remove Jesus from the world, if you remove Jesus from creation, if you remove Jesus from the heavens, if you remove Jesus from anything, the instant you did that, all things would just disintegrate. All things would just fall apart. And this is one of the reasons I get so fired up when I hear this defeatist Christian rhetoric. I was reminded of that when I was talking to some teenagers at a church way out in the, the mountains this past week, and I was sharing with them just some basic gospel things, and, and the conversation immediately goes to, well, you know they've taken Jesus out of schools, right? I'm like, well... Oh. It's, it's impressive if they can take Jesus out of schools. I mean, that's pretty impressive. I mean, we're talking about a big God here. See, I think a lot of us, we really, we say Jesus is God, but then we think he lives in Washington, if that makes any sense. Like, we say he has all this power, but when push comes to shove and things don't go the way we think they should go, then all of a sudden he's just not there anymore. God, if Jesus weren't in schools, or if Jesus weren't in hospitals, or if Jesus weren't in, then everything would fall apart. Like, Jesus is upholding all things actively by the word of his power. Every subatomic particle in motion is in motion at the grace and at the hands of King Jesus. And if he were to relent, all things would fall apart. Matter as we know it would not exist. Institutions as we know them 
would not be, and humanity would just be one massive free-for-all. There would be no order. There would just be chaos. Our vision of Jesus is just simply way too small. He is the one who actively upholds all things. Every subatomic particle is, is obedient, at least in function, to Jesus. And if it were not for Jesus, all of creation would descend into chaos and disorder. What an incredible picture we have of Jesus. He is the one who created all things, whether we see them or don't see them, in heaven and on earth. Not only is he the one that created all things, they were created through his power and for his glory. And he is before all things. He's preeminent over all of them. And in him, all things hold together. What an incredible truth about Jesus. And then in verse 18... Paul says, and he is the head of the body, the church. What an unbelievable gift to the church. Look who owns the church. Look who rules the church. Look who runs the church. Look who is the head of the body that informs the rest of the body. It's the same God who created all things and upholds all things and to whom all things are going. The one who runs the world runs the church. And even though we might not see it right now, everything will work out just as he intended. The church in parts of the world may be beaten, and the church in parts of the world may be persecuted, and the church in parts of the world may be marginalized, but the church will never be beheaded because Jesus reigns over it. Colossians, Paul's saying, you're not just following Epaphras in the wilderness. Colossians, I know when you look at the governments and you look at all the people around you, they look like they have all the power. But Colossians, let me remind you of what is ultimately true. Any power anyone thinks they have actually belongs to Christ, and he will ultimately reclaim that power. Anything you see, Christ has created. And all things that you're going through, Christ intends for your good and his glory. Colossians, West Virginians, visitors from wherever you may be in here this morning. That God is our God. He runs the church. He will see us through to completion. We don't live in fear. We live in victory. The text goes on to say he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. I love this language of he is the beginning. He is the beginning. What does Paul mean when he says Jesus is the beginning? We get a hint at what he means when he says the firstborn from the dead as a sort of qualifier to he is the beginning. He is the beginning, comma, and a positive here, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So Christ being the beginning is, is 
in meaning tethered to the reality that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. That his first step out of the tomb was the first step towards a new world. I don't think it's a stretch to say that that empty tomb is like a second garden of Eden. That there was a beginning in the garden of Eden, that God was creating the world in such a way that it would glorify him. All things were created to multiply, plants and everything was made bearing seed that they may multiply, that they may give from them life that would go and go and go, and the whole earth would be filled with this good creation that recognized as life came from its creator, and the whole world would function in harmony the way God intends. But we know that's not how the story goes, because we know that the creation doubted the creator. The creation used the gifts of God, and instead of using them to glorify God, we use them to satisfy and glorify ourselves. And so the story of humanity from that point forward hasn't been one of harmony and peace and healthy multiplication and growth and life and vibrancy. The story of humanity has been a story of people who are trying to make sense of the world without making sense of the one who made the world. It's a story of people who are looking for meaning and looking across instead of looking up. It's a story of people who are built with an idea that there is a God because there's something intrinsic across time and space that humans have believed that, but because of our sin, we don't rightly think of who that God is. But when Jesus rose from the dead, it was like a like a new Garden of Eden. It was like God stepping into history to change course. It was like God acting so decisively and so finally that His will for the world would ultimately come to be. Jesus, the firstborn from the dead, was proof, as we talked about last week, that there would be more firstborn, there would be more born from the dead. There would be a new world, and in this new world, all would be about Jesus. See, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that, or that, in everything, he might be preeminent. That he was risen from the dead, so that he might be made known, so that he might be put in his proper position. And when he is put in his proper position, everything else begins to make sense. Everything else begins to go the way it should. Verse 19, why? For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What a miracle that is. The fullness of the one who creates galaxies by his words dwelled in Christ, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven. And if we were to keep reading, we would expect that reconciliation to look a whole number of ways. We've seen a picture of a big God who's beaten death, 
We've seen a picture of a, a big God who is powerful, who creates all things, who sustains all things, who keeps all things on track. He's the one who does all of these great things. And he made peace, finally. How? With triumphant war, with a rousing speech, with a show of power that just scared everyone to death. No. He made peace by the blood of his cross. God has reconciled all things to himself by dying. By the blood he poured out for us. Verse 21, and you. I underlined that in my Bible a long time ago. Not because it's all about me, but because I want to feel the force of that and you. I mean, look who we've been talking about. We've been talking about the God who creates and sustains all things, the one to whom all glory is due, the one who has all power. This is the God we're talking about. And now he's talking directly to the church. By extension, he's talking directly to us. And you, as we jump into our next section of the sermon, Christ for us, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, verse 21. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Let's stop there. Paul's bringing this all to the ground. He's bringing this all right back to the Colossians and he's saying, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. Alienated just means separated, right? An alien is a thing or a person or whatever that is, that is foreign to a, a place, right? So if we were alienated from God, we were separated from God. We were apart from the life of God because we were hostile in mind, doing evil deeds because of our hostility of our minds. We didn't recognize God for who he was. We were living our own lives. We were living our way. We were doing the things that we thought we should do. And those of us who were enemies of God by nature, we were apart from him. We were hostile towards him. We weren't moving towards him. We were moving towards ourselves. We were moving towards sin. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, meaning God has died to make peace with a hostile alien. Meaning God has died to make peace with someone who didn't want peace to be made with him because he didn't think he needed it. That God just doesn't die for good people. God dies for sinners. God dies for seriously messed up people. God offers his life freely. God doesn't stand and wait for us to be worthy. He doesn't wait for us to figure it out. He dies for those who are hostile in mind and alienated in the flesh, meaning apart from God because of our sin. 
he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh, meaning he took on a body like ours and he has made a way to God where there was previously no way. Why, the text says, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That God has done what you could not do. He died in your place. He satisfied all the demands that were on you. He died in your place so that he could present you to God the Father as holy, as blameless, and as above reproach, just like he is. Jesus took your sin and he gave you his standing with God. What a beautiful truth, but there is an if. Verse 23. If, indeed, you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. He will present you holy and blameless before him if you continue in the faith. You will stand before God, church, Christian, you will stand before God holy and blameless if, if you hold on to the faith. This is a difficult word, and it's one we could easily misinterpret, so don't hear this. Don't hear if you continue in the works. That's not good news. That's fickle news. That could go any which way, right? Because some days your works are probably pretty good. And some days your works are probably pretty bad. And so God's not judging you on like 30 minute increments. He doesn't have like a heavenly stopwatch. And he's like, okay, 30 minutes, let's check on their works now. And then do a, you know, an assessment of you. Okay, we have uh, two points for helping a lady across the street. One point for a nice comment you made to someone. And we're gonna have to deduct four for that cuss word I heard. But we're gonna be able to add one for that little prayer you said. God doesn't do that. But that's sort of how it works in our minds. Paul's not saying if you hold on to the works and die with more good than bad, you go to heaven. Continuing in works is exhausting. Continuing in faith is sustainable. Continuing in works is impossible and draining. Continuing in faith is difficult, yet constantly fulfilling. The Christian life is one that we live that's not easy, but we're also not trying to jump ship every day. The Christian life is a sustainable turning to Christ. It's a holding on to Christ as the object of our faith. Paul's not saying that those who have faith, true faith, saving faith, will lose their faith. He's reminding us that we're saved by God's grace through faith, and those who are truly saved, those who have tasted that grace, are marked by faith. I say this all the time, and it gets repetitive, but I need to hear it, and and you need to hear it. The Christian life is a marathon. It's not three church services and you're good. 
It's not how we churches tend to market ourselves. A hard week with a fill-up on Sunday, a hard week with a fill-up on Sunday, that's maybe good church marketing, but it's not good spirituality. The Christian life is, as Eugene Peterson famously has said, a long obedience in the same direction. The Christian life is saying the kingdom of God is out there and the kingdom of God is right here among us and we are a band of traveling sojourners who are going there. And it's just beyond the horizon and we can see it and we're going to get there by God's grace. And we live all of our lives oriented to where we're going. And because of that, we have to live sustainably. We have to live together sustainably. Uh, Worship team, if you guys will come up onto the stage. He will present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast. Just making the course stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. When your hope shifts, your path shifts. When your destination changes, everything changes. Uh, We were out of town earlier this week, and uh, I saw someone using a map. Did you know they still made those? like a paper map where you actually have to like unfold it and look at it. And there was someone who was, I'm not kidding, they they were sitting on the side of the road and they had a map out that covered their whole windshield and they're trying to make sense of where they're going. And I'm just like, holy cow, imagine. And some of y'all used to travel like that. Like you actually used to have to figure out where you were going. And if you figured out where you were going, that sort of dictated how you got there every little turn. And if you made one wrong turn, well, that could be the one wrong turn you make and you end up in the wrong place. I mean, if you're coming back from Carolina, right, and you're going up the, uh, 77 and you get off on, you, you go 81, you'll end up over in Virginia. If you end up over in Tennessee because you take a different route, like, you got to stay the course. And what will happen there is if you take that one detour, you could end up anywhere before GPS, which reverts us to course. And so the point I'm making is just that the destination determines the course. And, and today with GPSs in our phones, like we can make a wrong turn and, and we can get back on the right path. Because every little decision we make, every stop sign and stoplight and highway and byway that we use is governed by where we're going. And I think in our Christian lives, if we lose the hope of the gospel, if we lose the promise of what's out there, then we're wired to live towards hope. We're going to go where we think things are going to work out. We're going to live into some sort of hope or expectancy. And if our hope begins to shift, if our destination begins to shift, our lives will begin to live into that different hope. If I'm saying, I no longer have all my hope that everything is going to make sense in Jesus, then I'm going to make sense of life somewhere else. And slowly but surely, I'm going to take path, a different path. And I'll end up separated from God. The Christian life is a life that continues in the faith, faith, stable and steadfast. And it's not shifting 
from the hope of the gospel. The hope of the gospel is our true north, and we're always moving towards it. Church, I remind you this morning that Christ, the creator of all, died for you. So I have two questions for you in response. Question one, do you know him? Are you visiting this morning? Are you not a believer this morning? Do you know this Jesus who is so powerful and so good? And the second question is, do you love him? Do you know him? Do you love him? Yeah, yeah, I know him. I love him. Blah, 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 blah. What's next? Yeah, yeah, I love him. I know him. Blah, blah, blah. blah, blah. No, no, no. Just focusing on him stir your heart. Does he cross your mind? Is he the object of your affections? Church, he warms our heart by reminding us that he is the one who created all things and he is the one who died for me. He knew me while I was alienated from him, while I was hostile in mind to him. He saw me when I didn't see him and he loved me when I didn't love him and he chased me when I was chasing everything but him and he focused on me when I was distracted by everything and he loved me too death. Jesus, the one who created all things, is the one who's making all things right, both cosmically, both universally, and in your heart. And today, in just a moment, as we come to the Lord's table, we are proclaiming, this is how he did it. This is how he upholds the universe. This is how he died for, this is how he, he's made a way for our salvation. This is how everything will be made right. He has died and he has risen and that changes everything. This is how he saved the world and I want to make the case that this is how we change the world. This morning as we come to the table, we're asking God to make us a sacrificial people. We come and we die. When you look at how Jesus uses bread in the New Testament, he'll bless it. He'll bless God for that bread. He'll break it. And he'll give it. The bread is blessed. It's broken and given. And I think Jesus is doing that with bread to teach us something about himself. He would say, well, I am the what of life. I am the bread of life. And I think about God the Father opening up the heavens, right, when Jesus is baptizing. This is my son. Listen to him. <laughs> and the Spirit of God came like a, as a dove and rested on him, and he was blessed. He was set apart. And then on the cross, he was broken. And he was given to the world that we might live. Church, in the same way, we are blessed by God. We are being broken by God this morning and on Monday morning and on Wednesday afternoon and on Friday night. We are being broken by God that we may be given for the life of the world. That is what we profess and proclaim as we come to this table in a moment. I'm going to pray and give you a moment for reflection.
and then we'll partake together of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, our text this morning is pretty straightforward, but the depths of it we will never mine in a lifetime. God, we can think of your goodness and your glory and your greatness and your power and your majesty. You know, we could think about this for an entire lifetime and we'll never really get through a full knowledge of it because it's so marvelous, it's so wonderful, it's so good. You've drawn near to us. You've loved us. The Christ over all is the Christ who's died for us. Stir our hearts. Fix our minds on you. Set the compass of our hearts towards your kingdom and let us never shift from the hope of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.